and fury of the resurrection. There's a new world a-coming. Today and every Sunday at this hour, WMCA, in cooperation with the Citywide Citizens Committee on Harlem, brings you a series of vivid programs dramatizing the inner meaning of Negro life, based on the prize-winning bestseller, New World A-Coming, by Roy Otley. Today, the story behind the news in the Negro press, starring songstress Maxine Sullivan, character actor Lee Whipper, and Canada Lee as narrator. Negro seems impatient about his condition in American life. It's because he wears a shoe, and he knows where it pinches. To understand what the Negro thinks about these days and why, you have only to turn to the Negro press, for it is a faithful reflector of the Negro mass mind. Today, there are more than 200 Negro newspapers published throughout the United States. A few of them have been in existence since long before the Civil War. Many have an influence in American life far beyond the imagination of most people. What do these papers print? Why? That is our story today. So now let's turn to the front page of a recently published edition of the Negro Press and see what it says. White allies have no moral cause for which they are fighting so long as they are carrying this double sin, the sin of India's subjection and the subjection of Negroes, says Gandhi, the Indian leader. The unyielding attitude of Britain in India with the American government's tacit support of this policy, has been the subject of much discussion in Negro circles. Let's step into the office of a Negro paper and listen while the editorial writers discuss the reasons for quoting Gandhi. The rule of India, John, like that of other colony, is based on force. Mm, that's right, Bill. And here's another point that I'll try to bring out in my editorial. When force remains in the hands of alien rulers, there can be no real independence nor successful defense against foreign invaders. That's absolutely right. Look at what happened to Malaya, Burma, and Java. And Bill, I think you should also show something about the Negroes' attitude toward this war. Show it uh, as a direct product of his condition. How do you mean, John? Explain it a little more in detail. Well, simply this. The Negro's condition is no longer simply a domestic question. It has international overtone. The color problem today is a large element in the strategy of totally defeating the Axis. Hmm. How about starting the editorial this way? The condition of the black man in the United States 
has become the barometer of democracy to the colored leaders of the world and suggests to them, should certain fascist leaders in America have their way, the sort of democracy which may dominate the new world a coming. That's right. And that's good. The fact is that conflicts between the races are inevitable. Unless there's cooperation and desire by whites to see that freedom is the desire and rights of all people. Negro newspapers are the Negro Affairs supplements of the White Dailies. For nearly every Negro who reads the White Daily also subscribes to at least one Negro newspaper. Negro papers print considerable news and features which can find no place in the white press, either because of its taboos or squeamishness. For example, one paper used this provocative headline, Negro Woman Wins $200,000 in Miscegenation Case. This was news in every newspaper. But one Negro publication reported the dramatic courtroom scene which took place in the Deep South. This case involved a Mrs. Betty Lewis. Her father was a white banker and her mother a handsome brown woman. Among Mrs. Lewis's friends was a mulatto descendant of Lady Shipley of England, Fanny Coles, who came into court with Mrs. Lewis to prove her right to inherit her father's property. The lawyer made a target of Fanny Coles, who was a tall and beautiful brunette. Uh, Miss Coles, what was your father's name? Robert Coles. Uh-huh. Uh, what was your mother's name? Mrs. Robert Coles. Now, uh, how can that be her name? Was she married to your father? Listen, I didn't come into court to be insulted by you. My father worshipped my mother. They were in love. They respected each other, and they tried to be married in this state. But under the laws of this state, my mother, my father could not marry my mother. So they decided in the eyes of God to live together and be man and wife. And my mother had 16 proud children by the man who chose her as his wife. Just then in the back of the courtroom, an old white man arose, clad in a Confederate uniform with badges and decorations. He was General Coles. Leaning heavily on his cane, he limped to the front, stood near the judge, and violently shaking his finger in the face of the offending lawyer, said, Look here, Gilliam. That's my brother's daughter. She did not come here to be humiliated. And by God, she won't be. Say another insulting word, and I'll hold you personally responsible. <laughs> One reason for the wide reading of Negro newspapers, besides the fact that they carry news of special interest to Negroes, is that the Negro population is rapidly growing in education. Thirty years ago, almost a third of the Negro community could neither read nor write. Education, therefore, is one of the great concerns of Negroes, which explains why the Negro press carried this as a headline story.
educators urge federal support for schools. The Negro papers took the occasion to recall an actual conversation that took place between Theodore Roosevelt during his time as President of the United States and Wallace Buttrick, then President of the General Education Board. They were discussing how much education a Negro should receive. President Theodore Roosevelt said, Yes, Buttrick, I suppose we ought to see to it that every colored child is assured a primary education. I should think so, Mr. President. Uh, that, I should say, would be enough. How do you feel about it? All right. If we're to provide only primary education. But uh, what about teachers? Well, I suppose the teachers ought to be high school graduates. Very well. What about the high school teachers? Well, what about them? Should they have any training beyond the high school? Mm. Yes, I suppose a high school teacher should have a college education. Yes, that's right. You know, really, Buttrick, there's no end to this thing, is there? Today, there is a section of the population that feels the same way. But generally, the public attitude is different, for it symbolizes a new world of coming. A great section of the white community is beginning aggressively to support the Negroes' right for an equal opportunity to secure equal education with whites, without any limitations whatsoever. Walter Hoving, head of Lord and Taylor, when accepting the chairmanship of the United Negro College Fund Campaign Committee, had this to say. In my opinion, the support of Negro education is one of the most forward-looking steps to help Negroes help themselves by making it possible for them, through higher education, to develop sound Negro leadership will go far toward creating better understanding between the races in America. And the President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt, recently issued a statement dramatically illustrating the change of public attitude toward the education of Negroes. FDR said, I have long been familiar with the work of many of these Negro colleges, and have made personal visits to a number of their campuses in recent years. Despite their limited resources, these schools have made manifold contributions to our war effort, not only in the field of Negro leadership, but also in the practical training of skilled and technical workers for the arsenal of the democracies. These institutions have still a greater contribution to make in the period which will follow our assured victory. Oh, but by no means is everything in the Negro press of a crepe-hanging nature. Occasionally you'll run across a, well, a bit of poetry. A popular one with the editors is the poem by Langston Hughes, I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me in the kitchen to eat when company comes. <laughs> but I laugh 
and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll sit at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. For I, too, am America. Today, naturally enough, what happens to the Negro soldiers of great concern to the Negro public? The treatment meted out to Negro soldiers in some section of the country is a burning issue in the Negro press. From day to day, a long list of injustices are reported. But the Negro public was hardly prepared for a particular ironic development. In a banner headline recently, this statement appeared. Six Negro soldiers barred from railroad station dining room. The Negro press described this story as the all-time low in human relationships. What actually happened was contained in a letter to the editory written by one of the Negro soldiers involved. Nine of us, all Negro soldiers, were on our way from the hospital at Camp Claiborne, Louisiana, to the hospital at Fort Hachuca. After having been crowded like cattle in one coach, the Jim Crow car, we arrived in El Paso, Texas. Here we had a wait of 12 hours before we could continue our journey. One of the boys said, Boy, I'm hungry. Let's get a bite to eat over at the station dining room. Station dining room? Why not? Come on, let's go. Mm, okay with me. Come on, yeah, let's go. Yes, Come on. <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. Oh, uh, mm. boy, am I hungry. Yeah, man, I could eat a cow. Wait a minute, uh, uh, that's the waiter. Say, miss. Yes? Can we have a menu, please? Say, miss, miss. Huh? Oh, she passed you like a freight train passing a tramp. Yeah, she didn't even answer. Oh, well, maybe she didn't hear you. She'll be back in a minute. been waiting to get some to eat for almost an hour. Where? Right here. Are you the waitress, aren't you? Yes. Well, uh, can we get something to eat? No, we don't serve colored. Uh, we're not asking you to serve colored. We're asking you to serve this uniform. We don't serve colored uniform or no uniform. But some of these soldiers are very sick. They just came from a hospital. Well, don't blame me. Uh, how about some coffee? No, and please don't annoy me. I'm busy. Oh, well, can you imagine that? <laughs> well, guys, I guess we got to go. They don't serve colored here. Imagine that. Can't even buy a cup of coffee at any price in that station. Yeah, and we have to give our lives. Yeah. We've sworn to give our lives for this country, but we ain't good enough to eat in that place. Oh, it ain't right. Uh, say. Say, look at that. Where? Coming up the street, coming this way. Do, do, do you see what I see? Why, it's German soldiers. German soldiers. Oh, it can't be. Yes, it sure is. Why, they're Nazi soldiers. Well, right you is. They're prisoners of war. Oh, why, they're going right into the dining room. No, they ain't. 
Yes, they are. Well, oh, oh. Hey, look, look through this window. Well, I'll be doggone. Why, they're being fed in the same dining room that refused us. <gasps> Nazis and enemies of our country, eating where we can't eat. Well, what do you think about that? I don't know. I don't get it. Let's stay here and watch and see what goes on. As we stood on the outside and saw what was going on, we could hardly believe our own eyes. There they sat, the Nazis, at a large table, laughing, smoking, and talking, and their meals being served to them. On what team or on what side is our country playing or fighting? To understand the collective behavior of Negro America, we must try to grasp the meanings of the immense prestige that the Negro community attaches to those who are successful, and to grasp as well the social factors operating in the background. For one thing, the Negro is vastly concerned with the individual. When a Negro is a success, it is credited not only to him, but to the whole race. Close track is kept of Negroes who have been successful in all fields. This fact explains the headline that appeared on a theater page of the Negro press in these words. Maxine Sullivan, popular song stylist, opens on Broadway. Maxine Sullivan's importance to the Negro community is more than that of a mere singer today. She's been singing for soldiers nightly, both Negro and white, helping to keep up morale for fighting men on leave from battlefronts around the world. To them, she dedicates a song most often requested. Just like a gypsy I've wandered my whole life through Watching and waiting for somebody just like you Hoping and wishing my luck would break Wandering, wandering My life on some mistake But now that I've found you I need never wonder more You are the one dear that I have been waiting for With love I may grow to be Like the gypsy would do Searching hill and there Till I hit the trail Strike home to you are the one dear that I have been waiting for. 
with love I may grow tipsy Like a dipsy would do Searching hill and dale Till I hit the trail Right home to you Hope among Negroes ride high But a minority of vocal whites Are determined that the Negroes shall not advance When white liberals and the federal administration appease such elements, the Negro's thinking is confused and his morale lowered. The almost insurmountable prejudice of employers and backward labor unions is no abstraction, but a solid fact the Negro faces day after day. Of course, he well knows there are white men in America who would rather lose the war, even their own freedom, than see any change in the racial status quo. And this attitude has received provocative encouragement from Axis sources. So we began to understand why this headline appeared in the Negro press of the country. Racial friction at Long Island war plant. This incident occurred in a Long Island plant. A Negro janitor was upgraded to a skilled worker, and the white workers promptly went to their white foreman protesting. No, sir. I'll quit. Joe, now you're the foreman. You know we'll quit if that Negro takes over a machine. Yeah. Well, what do you say? We, we, we don't mind him doing janitor work, but... Now, wait a minute, man. Wait a minute. You see that bridge over there and those docks? Yeah. Sure. What about oh, it? All right. Well, who do you think is guarding them? Negro soldiers, so what? Yeah. And who's guarding all of the vital area in New York? Negro, Negro soldiers? soldiers? Yes, yes, Negro soldiers. But do you kick about that? Well, what's that got to do with it? What are you no, driving at? No, you don't kick about that. And you've got nerve enough to walk out when a Negro is put on a machine the same as you. Well, that's different. What's different about it? Can't help it if his skin is different? Yeah, but... But he's an American citizen. But I don't see what you're driving. If Negroes are good enough to guard this city and keep you safe, the Negroes are good enough to work and earn a living. Just as you men. Every worker was back at his machine the next morning. This incident was an index to the talk current as to whether or not Negroes and whites can work together harmoniously. This is profoundly important today when the nation needs the highest national efficiency to wage a total war against fascism. But also important is the simple fact that even after the war, in peacetime, human beings should work together. Experience shows it's possible. Bishop Francis J. Haas former head of the President's Fair Employment Practices Committee, has said that we know from experience that when Negroes and whites work together, they get along together. More than that, they get to respect one another and even to like one another. editorial line of the Negro press today 
expresses the urgent need of extending democracy to the American Negro and the profoundly positive effect it would have in galvanizing Negroes into action, as well as the reassuring effect it would have upon the colored peoples elsewhere in the world. Viewed on its broadest plane, this is, in fact, a crusade for democracy. The Negro press is, in effect, serving the fundamental rights of all peoples, white and black, by its insistence upon the extension of democracy. To quote from the editorial platform of the Negro press, The Negro press believes that America can best lead the world away from racial and national antagonisms when it accords to every man, regardless of race, color, or creed, his human and legal rights. You have been listening to New World Are Coming the eighth in a series of programs devoted to the Negro's contribution to American life. Starring in today's broadcast were Miss Maxine Sullivan, Mr. Lee Whipper, and Mr. Canada Lee. We invite you to be with us again next Sunday at three past three. The radio dramatization of New World Are Coming is written by Roy Otley. The program is produced and directed by Mitchell Grayson. John Velasco assisted. Music was conducted by Bill Wurgis. The theme song was composed by Duke Ellington. Members of the cast included Norman Rose, Martin Wolfson, Randy Eccles, Clarence Foster, David Kerman, Grace Rogers, Andrew Pendleton, and Paula Bowersmith. This was a public service feature of WMCA. James speaking. This is America's leading independent station. <laughs>